Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcie. On today's podcast, we got Sasha Jenkins, who is a documentarian, film producer, and the creative director and partner at Mass Appeal. And Sasha is joining us to talk about his most recent documentary, which is all about Rick James. It's called Bitchin', The Sound and Fury of Rick James. And if you haven't checked it out yet, this documentary is on Showtime, and it's a fascinating and raw portrayal of the life and times of Rick James. I mean, if you pause and think about it, it is really fascinating to think about someone like Rick James. If you're old enough, then you definitely remember how wild this man was, especially in his heyday in the 80s. If you're a little bit younger, then your discovery points of him may have been through MC Hammer sampling Super Freak for You Can't Touch This. And if you're a millennial, one of your biggest touch points to Rick James may be the Charlie Murphy's Real Hollywood Story sketch from The Dave Chappelle Show. In a lot of ways, that span and that interest does speak a lot to the Rick James experience. And in this conversation, Sasha and I talk all about that as well. We also talked about the boom in music documentaries. Obviously, the streaming era has paved way that we've seen so many of these. Plenty of music documentaries, also plenty of music movies that are happening as well. All of these biopics and how that may have changed things for the type of projects or the type of things that Sasha is working on. We also talked about some of the things he has planned lined up in some of the projects so you'll hear more about what he has and what he's already working on now that this documentary is over so let's get into it here's my chat with sasha jenkins today's episode of the trapital podcast is brought to you by mighty networks if you're a content creator or an entrepreneur building a community around your business is key and you want to be able to bring it all together in one place and mighty networks has you covered it is your one-stop shop to bring your content courses, events, all together in one place without integrating with other tools. Join successful creators like Lovey, Ajay Jones, Wall Street Trapper, and more. Go to MightyNetworks.com to start your 14-day free trial. Today, we're joined by Sasha Jenkins, who is a film director, a documentary director that recently put out Bitchin', The Sound and Fury of Rick James. First off, congrats on getting the documentary out. And I got to ask, what was the inspiration for you to study Rick James and put out a project about him? Well, very simply, the project came across the desk of folks at Showtime, and they asked me if I was interested in doing it. And of course, I said, yes, uh, Rick James is such an intriguing, prolific, cultural, musical figure that uh, it was totally up my alley. Yeah. So one of the things in the documentary I thought was good was the balance that you had of being able to navigate both the personal life and all wanting to celebrate all the success that Rick James had accomplished, but also navigating his demons and being able to tell that story as well. What was it like balancing that fine line and the work you had to do to make sure that you got that across in the best way? Yeah, a few people have asked me that question. My answer is I just rely on journalism. Journalism is something that people have lost sight of these days in the world of fake news and people being confused. It's, there's no confusion. You want to hear all sides of a story. And his musical genius, Rick James's musical genius is undeniable, but there's no way to deny the fact that he was in trouble a lot. There's no way to deny that he went to jail for some things that were heinous. And some of those things might've informed his music. 
So in order to really understand the man, you got to understand the man and understanding the man goes well beyond understanding his music. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think another interesting point that you had mentioned too was, or you didn't specifically say this, but there was an underlying theme about how there were other people that had either maximized or helped maximize the impact of Rick James for different generations or even in other ways. So for instance, MC Hammer putting out, you can't touch this. And that song ends up making Rick more money than the original super freak song. And then I think a decade later, the Chappelle show reintroduces the legacy of this person to a whole nother generation. And it's interesting to have someone like that, who I think in many ways either got reintroduced or their success got extended in a way because of what other people had done with their art. Was that a specific thing that you were trying to get through or communicate? Cause that was definitely something that I took away with uh, watching the doc. Yeah. I knew that that would make him extremely contemporary. I mean, if, the Rick J- I'm Rick James bitch moment happened in today's climate with social media. It would have been bananas. It would have broken the internet, but he broke the internet at a time when the internet wasn't as powerful. You had little kids getting suspended for saying, I'm Rick James bitch. It crossed them over to a whole new generation of people who weren't familiar with him, but then sort of getting in touch with his personality. And I think that's what people are more into these days more than anything. If you've got a big personality, that's what people are interested in. And if you have great music and a big personality, even better. So those moves on behalf of Rick James kept him in front of all of us for much longer than most artists of his elk and his time. The irony of that I'm Rick James bitch moment is that a lot of the people around Rick were a bit frustrated by it because they felt like it may be cheapening his legacy that he's now this Chappelle show punchline. But on the other side, Rick himself leaned into it with that uh, that appearance that he had at the BET Awards show a few months after. And I thought that was an interesting balance, too, just because what the artist ends up doing may be different from how those pure fans feel about it. And artists sometimes do things that they don't necessarily want to do. I mean, we don't have Rick James anywhere saying, oh, that moment on the Chappelle show made me feel bad or I regret doing it. We don't have that. So the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. He probably felt invigorated and and re-energized by the attention that he was getting from a whole new generation of fans. As someone says in the film, David Ritz, the author, um, fame is is a high. When you're used to having an adulation and people giving you compliments all the time, that's a high. And for someone like Rick who struggled with addiction, getting that natural high from being recognized had great value for him, I imagine. But at the same time, did he feel conflicted about it? Maybe he did, but we'll never know. But we had the balance of people who had different perspectives on it in the film. Right. And I'm sure there's even the further separation between Rick's initial impression doing it because he did participate in in that um, Chappelle so sketch, the Charlie Murphy, real Hollywood stories. But then where the reaction goes and where it takes it is a completely different thing. Right. It almost reminds me of the musicians like, let's say, a group like Outkast. They put out a song like, hey, yeah, they have their thought of what it's going to be like before. But then they end up getting so, you know, either frustrated or sick of hearing this song because of the reception of it. And that's one thing that, you know, sounds like you're alluding to that I feel like is, could be part of this as well. It could easily be, but we don't, you know, I don't know for sure. That's why I try to 
give people the opportunity to make their own decisions when we don't have a definitive answer, you can deduce yourself what you think it may have been. I think with the voices we have in the film, it gives you the best, it gives you the sharpest tools to sort of make that kind of assessment for yourself. I'd like to talk a little bit more about the development and the process of getting this film off the ground. I know that you mentioned you already had a relationship with Showtime. They had reached out to you about it, but what were the steps like in the process? Well, you want to learn all that you can about someone you're making a film about. So the research process comes. So you get researchers involved. You are researching along with the researchers. You're reading all the literature. You're reading all the biographies and autobiographies and watching film and YouTube and performances and interviews to sort of try to get as close as you can to who the artist is. And then you hire a staff and you look through your research and interviews and you think about compiling a list of the people who would really round out the story, people who knew him in a particular way, had particular relationships with him, whether they were good friends when he died or on the outs. And from there, you start to shape what the story is or what you think the story might be based on what these people will say. Then you sketch that out on paper, and then you go out and shoot your interviews. And you come armed with questions. You know, I always have questions, but they're more, for me, points of reference, because I, I fancy myself as someone who likes to have conversations with people. And I'm sure you understand as someone who does this, when people feel like you're listening to them and you're interested in them and in the moment interested in them and something resonates inside of the conversation that pushes you to go down a rabbit hole and ask other questions, that opens up the possibilities. And so you sketch out something, you think it's going to be one thing, and then through your interviews, you realize, well, no, it's actually something else. And then by the end, you realize it's somewhere in between what you thought and what they told you. And so... That's pretty much it. You do the research, you figure out who you want to interview, you put together your crew, try to find great directors of photography, great editors. Um, It takes a village. I think that my films have a consistent voice, which is me. And I think it's great to have the opportunity to tell these stories and people who maybe have watched a few of my films can say, okay, I can tell that this guy did it. But really, inside of that, it's a chorus. It's a team effort. You know, if you have a great editor, if you have a great DP, you can have a great film. If you don't have solid people in those key positions, you can have a voice, but it might not be so good. So, so far, so good. I've been lucky in the films I've made to have the right team who understand my vision and who also bring a lot of their own ideas to make it even better than what I hoped it to be. I like the point you mentioned about you obviously have your vision or your thought about how it's going to go. You have the conversations and then depending on how it goes, things end up meeting somewhere in the middle. Is there anything that sticks out from you with this project specifically, the Rick James one, something that you had a thought about, but then after doing your research, you're like, okay, this is actually the other way, or this is somewhere that it ended up, you know, shifting my perception on it. Well, what I didn't think about was the amount of time he put into wanting to become a famous musician. He didn't really blow up until he was in his 30s. And by today's account, like if you start out trying to make it when you're 17, no one's sticking around until they're 30 to make it as an artist. So his determination and his ability to be in so many places. I mean, he had he not had a headache, he would have been at the the Manson murders. I mean, He was in the thick of so many different ideas and movements well beyond Buffalo, well beyond Black Buffalo. So he was ahead of his time in terms of 
having a very high literacy when it comes to culture and diverse cultures. He's extremely fluent in many other cultures. And that's also what makes him contemporary. I often reference someone like Pharrell, who can move in so many different worlds as a person of color. When Rick was doing it, it wasn't as easy. But that's what makes him contemporary. The fact that he's relatable to so many different people. He can hang out with Neil Young. He can hang out with George Clinton and still be his own man and be relatable to so many different people. I think that's the core of what makes him interesting. He's extremely fluent culturally in many different languages. Mm. And I think the things that he's willing to speak out on as well is a piece of his identity that I don't think got nearly as much coverage, at least in my experience with him. And that's one of the things that I think you called out there. For instance, how vocal Rick was about MTV and MTV not playing Black artists. I think there's even some irony in this because I think most of the people, they've seen the clips of David Bowie complaining about MTV not showing Black artists, but you rarely see the same clips of Rick James saying the same thing coming from that voice. And I think that's even an irony of itself. Like, let's repeat what the white rock star says about MTV not playing Black artists, or we're not hearing as much from the Black superstar about why MTV is not playing Black artists. There's no surprise about that. I mean, people want to suppress what Black people or people of color have to say, particularly around how they're being ignored or, or oppressed. So it was a ballsy move. It was, in, in many ways, not. it was unselfish of him to do that, to take a stand. Now, I'm sure a part of it was he had selfish motivations. I mean, I believe that he wanted all black artists to get played, but I also believe that he wanted his shit played on MTV too, you know? So it's a, I'll never know, but it doesn't matter. He was very vocal about his position. He explicitly said black folks. He didn't just say Rick James. He said, I feel it's important that black artists have the same kind of attention and platform. So he was about it. And uh, he tried to stand for what he believed in. And ultimately, in the film, he says he wasn't sure if it was the right decision, because in the, in the end, it hurt him, he believed. And I think that's something that's one of these like sad and true things we've seen, right? The people that make those early statements, they take the licks that other generations end up benefiting for it. You've seen it countless other examples. I mean, I'm a big NBA fan. Saw Allen Iverson take so much shit for the way that he carried himself, how he wore his hair, how he, the culture that he brought. And now so much of that is mainstay in the NBA and they all reference him for it again. And I think the same can be said about Rick in this example as well. Like now MTV, well, not now, but for a while MTV did end up playing black artists and we saw the impact of that. So that's unfortunately not a surprising thing. No. And there are so many other things that sort of speak to the Black experience. His contemporaries in his band, who are also from Buffalo, talked about how they wanted to get out of there. And the one way to get out was to join this military. And Rick made the same move, only he decided not to show up to his meetings. And he was supposed to get shipped out to Vietnam. And uh, from there, he went AWOL to Canada, and the rest is history. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsor. Let's talk a bit more about today's sponsor, Mighty Networks. As a content creator myself, I know firsthand how many tools are required to run a business like this. And managing all those tools can be time consuming and it can take you away from the work that you do best. And that's exactly why Mighty Networks was started. 
Not only can you bring everything together on one platform, but your community is at the center of it all. That means you have your own network effect, and your mighty network becomes more valuable with each new member who joins. You could offer them your content, courses, events, and more all in one place without integrating with other tools. You can customize your branding, track analytics, and spend more time on what you do best. You'll join successful creators like Lovey and Jai Jones, Wall Street Trapper, and many more who have built their own mighty network. Don't waste time navigating numerous platforms. Join the creators who have unlocked something new with their mighty network. Mighty Networks is offering a 14-day free trial to new users. Learn more at MightyNetworks.com. That's one piece that I didn't know as much about, so I'm glad you included that. I think that the time frame, of course, makes sense just given how old he was, but I think that's a piece that a lot of people didn't know about. So I'm glad you included that. That was really good to know. I mean, how random is it that he's just trying to get out of Buffalo and to avoid the draft, and as soon as he gets off the bus, he's called the N-word, these white guys come to his defense, and it winds up being the guys who play with Bob Dylan. And then he winds up becoming friends with all these people and Joni Mitchell and is in a band with Neil Young. I mean, you're just trying to get out of Buffalo and then you have this whole experience. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it is quite a trajectory. Um, and I'm really, it's one of the things I think I really want to revisit just because of how impressive it is. But for you, now that the documentary has been out, it's been released, you've seen the reaction and the response so far. How do you feel about the product you put out and then how do you feel about the response that's had so far? I feel like I did my best to do a balanced and fair representation of him. But when I make these films, I also think about people who look like me and how they are going to receive it first and foremost. And from what I've seen and what I've heard from people who look like me, the response has been pretty solid and people seem to really dig it. So for me, that's what's most important because so few of us have this, these opportunities to tell our stories. It's usually someone else who gets the opportunity without question. So I take the opportunity to tell our stories very seriously. So black people seem to like it, which is great. And others, you know, all kinds of hues and shades, people seem to enjoy it. So I feel good about it. Nice. No, you should. No, I, I, I think it's great. I think, you know, as many people should watch it as possible. And thinking about that piece specifically, just about wanting to get these stories told and wanting to get them made. I do feel like right now, from a broad perspective, we are in this boom for music documentaries and maybe documentaries more broadly, but whether it's current artists or artists from back in the day, we're just seeing more and more projects. And as someone that's been in this game for as long as you've been, What's your take on that dynamic and the way it's been the past few years? And how has that changed either the opportunities that have come to you or how you've approached the process of creating a documentary? Well, I think people realize that when you unpack music, particularly Black music, you are looking at the DNA of Black folks because I've come to believe that there aren't any music genres because... Louis Armstrong, who I'm making a film about now, he caught a gun charge at 14 and goes to reform school. You know, Rick James's mom ran numbers for the Italian mob. So did RZA. RZA's mom ran numbers for the Italian mob. So what I'm finding in telling these stories, it's the same story over and over again. And what it is, is the music is a reflection of and a reaction to the environment. And it's an oppressive environment. 
So how do we entertain ourselves? How do we keep ourselves focused? How do we tell stories about ourselves and our dreams and our desires and our pain? And all of that is wrapped up in the DNA of our music. So there are so many important, compelling stories to, t- to tell about people in general and musicians in general, but black people and brown people in particular, the music says so much. And so when you unpack the music, you unpack all these bigger ideas that are super contemporary and relevant and don't ever seem to change. And in black music is popular culture. It's American culture. And for the longest time, and I don't know that it's changed, but you know, African-Americans, people of color are not necessarily given the same treatment as your typical American does. Everything is Black History Month. No one's looking at our stories in the context of American history. And so you look at the book of Mice and Men, you know, American classic. I named my Wu-Tang series of Mikes and Men. Sound and Fury is an American classic. Bitch in the Sound and Fury of Rick James. What I'm saying is, We are American classics, too. Pay attention to us. Our stories are important. Our stories are woven in the fabric of this nation. This nation would not exist without us, not in the way that it is today. And so you have to listen to what we're saying. You have to understand, respect, and appreciate what what we're saying. And look at us as Americans, not as other. And the music from day one has been screaming, we are not other. We belong here. We've earned the right to be here. We deserve to be here. You wouldn't be shit without us. Your popular culture would not exist if it wasn't for what it was that we did. Elvis Presley lived in the projects and he frequented black clubs. He was Eminem before Eminem. God bless Eminem and God bless Elvis. But neither of them would exist if it wasn't for black music and culture. Well said. I mean, I think that just seeing how many artists have been able to a copy so much of what's came from black culture has been a dynamic that unfortunately I don't think necessarily will ever change on the flip side though. What I feel like because people are and people like yourself are highlighting this more, whether it's through their journalism, their writing, their documentaries, they're putting out and that piece of it's been good. And that piece of it's really great to see. And you mentioned the Louis Armstrong, the documentary that you have coming up there. I'm curious with this though, do you think that this is the type of documentary that you would have been able to do if it weren't for this broader boom that's been happening? Like, do you feel like you've had more opportunities to get maybe some of these artists or some of these figures that may have not necessarily, whether it's the networks may have not necessarily been working willing to work with you on the vision to have their stories told if it weren't for this streaming era that we're in right now that just wants more content produced than ever. The appetite is there in the street, all the streaming helps, but I think they recognize that the audience wants to see people who look like them making films about them. So I was a journalist for many years before that, largely writing about music and writing about hip hop in particular. So There's a lot of people wanting to watch this content and a lot of platforms who want the eyeballs. So I'm very blessed to be a black, bankable, New York-based documentary filmmaker. But we need more. It's not, it shouldn't just be about me. And there are some great filmmakers out there. Chike Nkude, One Nine, Eric Parker, so many great black and brown filmmakers out there. But we need more. We need more 
of us telling our stories. And so hopefully more of us will get the opportunities to tell the story because I'm sure people can pick apart any number of my films and see things that I could have done differently. And I could say, yeah, you're right. I guess with a project like Louis Armstrong, right? And thinking about what you did with Mike's uh, Men as well with the Wu-Tang one, some of these projects have been your docu-series. They span over several different episodes. Some of them have been the straight shot hour plus, you know, up to two hour documentaries. What's that decision like? Is that something you decide? Is that something that the networks decide? Is it a co-collaboration along with the pitch? It's a combination. If the material warrants it, then these platforms want as much as you can give. So if there's four episodes worth of Wu-Tang, they'll take it. So it all depends on the project and the content. I mean, Rick James easily could have been three hours if you wanted it to be, but we felt that you could competently do him justice with one standalone film. So it all depends. Wu-Tang, there's like a lot of people in the group, a lot of years, a lot of records, a lot of history. So four episodes was the right thing to do in that case. Okay, that makes sense. Have they made a decision yet for the Louis Armstrong one? In terms of what? Length? Yeah, length. Right now it's standalone, but it could be more. We, we've discussed it potentially being maybe a, a two, maybe. A, I mean, his story is an opus, and he's misrepresented or people have misconceptions about him. But he's, he's a supremely, royally interesting guy, and a lot of popular culture. Pop, I mean, he's the first, before the Beatles, you know, he's getting off planes in Europe in the 50s with white people going nuts, like he's the Beatles. I mean, he's the guy who set the stage for so much of, for artists like Jay-Z, for artists like the Beatles. I mean, he was doing that first, and most, most people don't know or understand that. That makes sense. That makes sense. And... For you, I guess, thinking for the next few projects, what that could look like, it seems like a lot of these you've been approached for. But since we're in this moment where more of these projects are getting made more than ever, are there certain types of people that are in your wish list that are like, oh, now that we're in this moment, I think that we could get a project on this person up because I think it would be amazing. Is there anyone that's on your wish list to do a project on? I hate doing stuff like this because it could potentially jinx it. But I've been talking to folks about wanting to do Jimi Hendrix. Like to me, that would be, that would be it. Like I could retire. Like if I had the opportunity to do that, I'd be good. So we'll see. We'll see if I'm lucky enough to get the opportunity to do it. But his story is really way more than anyone can imagine. And certainly misrepresented and, and mostly represented by white journalists, you know, very rarely, do you get a look at Jimi Hendrix from the perspective of someone who might have looked like him? And so there are nuances and little subtle things that often get left out. And, you know, I'm sure he has Native American ancestry, but there's always this focus on him somehow being Native American more than anything else. And to me, that's a product of people not wanting to deal with blackness or feeling like being Native American, not, you know, being Native American is a beautiful thing. And I believe his grandmother was Native American and he was he was very proud to be have Native ancestry. But instead of sort of telling the complete story, they'll focus in on, well, his grandma was, you know, Native American, but what about everybody else? So if I had the opportunity, of course, I would love to explore his Native American, his Native ancestry and also his African American ancestry. Nice. Yeah. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, was there a specific part that you'd like to dive into? But yeah, no, I think that 
in more even more broadly, his blackness is something that I don't know has been explored in the same type of ways that it could. And I feel like who's been writing it is a big piece of that. So I mean he played he played with little Richard and the Isley brothers, like on the Chitlin circuit, making no money. Like that's black. You know, when he went to England, he was black. Like he just got turned on to all the he, he was all these white folks were into him and they were nice to him in the way they were nice to Rick James in Canada. Like anywhere outside the United States in the 1960s, if you meet halfway friendly white people who actually have respect for you and want to respect your talent and give you opportunities, of course you're going to be wide open. But that doesn't mean that because he's embraced by white people and all of a sudden he's divorced himself from his identity as a person of color. And if you look at his career, late in his career, he started a band called Band of Gypsies with with a guy named Buddy Miles and his military friend, Billy Cox. And people were threatened by that. He had a song called Machine Gun that was anti-war at a time when, you know, 1969, that stuff's in full swing. And before that, he wasn't really getting into politics. It was into colors and, you know, psychedelic things and experimentation, but it wasn't really about politics. But once he got into politics... You know, he died mysteriously. And guess what? A lot of people died mysteriously during those times. So his story is very interesting, and I would love the opportunity to unpack it. Yeah, that would be great. Best of luck. I hope it happens. No, that would be something. Thank you. Shifting gears a bit, one of the other projects that you're working on is Hip Hop's 50th Celebration, Hip Hop 50. You're doing this in collaboration with Mass Appeal. You're doing it with Nas as well. It would be great to hear a little bit more about that project, how it's going, and what your vision is to celebrate uh, Hip Hop's anniversary. So, you know, Mass Appeal is a bunch of people, but myself, Peter Bittenbender, and Nas are partners in the company. We're doing a program called Hip Hop 50 that's going to involve a lot of different films, books, music, programming. All these things that we're doing for Hip Hop 50 sort of ramp up and lead to Hip Hop's 50th anniversary, which is August 11th of 2023. Many people consider the bur- the party that Cool Herc threw for Sister Cindy as the sort of kickoff date for hip hop culture in general. So. We have a partnership with Showtime where we're producing lots of film and TV that's sort of in the hip-hop pocket and beyond that could support the celebration of hip-hop in its 50th year. Uh, we're doing partnerships with florists. We're doing partnerships with book publishers. You know, a broad range of people understand and respect the value of hip-hop culture and its contributions to world culture. You know, for instance, right now we have a few films with Showtime One is called Rolling Like Thunder. It's about uh, freight train graffiti culture. You know, what started here on the trains in New York City is now a uh, national movement with people who paint freights, trains, and paint graffiti on trains. We're doing a film about Ralph McDaniels, the founder and host of Video Music Box, which is the longest-running video show, I think, in the world, but super crucial for hip-hop and Black music, as he was many times the only person documenting some of these artists. So those are two examples of some of the films we have in production. We're also doing a multi-part series on the history of the DJ. Um, So, you know, graffiti and DJing, all these things are foundational to the formation and existence of hip-hop culture. So we're trying to tell a broad range of stories that can really give you, the viewer, a big, bright picture of where it all comes from and where it's gone. 
That's what's up. And I think one of the big focuses for a project like this, of course, is the regions and everywhere you're trying to have have a voice in this because I know that New York is home for so much of this. I mean, that's where this party that kicked everything off started and where so much of the early days of hip hop uh, had its origins. But on the flip side, there's so much else where you have a place like Atlanta and how important that is to hip hop culture, even some of the roots it has in the West Indies as well, specifically in Jamaica. That must be a whole other dynamic to be able to balance all of that piece too. Just making sure that you're representing everything, but you're still making it clear that New York is a cornerstone for this story. Well, that's what's great about hip hop. It is inspired by so many different things. It's a narrative of black folks in this country. You, you're given scraps and you create something wholly original. You know, it's an old story. Uh, music programs were one of the first things to go in, in New York City that was bankrupt. So when you consider that kids who are using turntables on the street, who turned the turntable from a tool, a simple tool to an actual instrument, the technological innovations that hip hop has created been very rarely celebrated or acknowledged. So hip hop, the breadth of the story is so, so wide ranging. The influence is so wide ranging and we're going to do our best to uh, get it right and I'm sure other people will be doing things for the 50th anniversary as well. So hopefully collectively we'll all be able to tell the most complete story that's ever been told up until now. You all got out early with the rollout though. I know other people will definitely have their voice in, but you all definitely got out early. Tell me a little bit more about what the stages will be like. What are things look like for the projects you'll be releasing or the timeline between now and August, 2023? Well, it's go time. So, you know, a lot of these relationships we've built, we've reached out to them upwards of a year ago because these things all take time. So right now we're in, the, in production on some projects and putting together some book deals and lining everything up. And that's about it. Trying to find the best possible stories that we all agree on, at least uh, ourselves in Showtime. And we have the opportunity, if Showtime's not interested in something we believe is great, we have the opportunity to take it elsewhere. So we'll also have programming on other platforms. So right now it's just go time. Just develop, pitch, sell, and make make great. You try to never oversell and always try to deliver on what we said we're going to make. And that's how you make your bones. If you overpromise, you won't get the opportunity. So it's really about quality over quantity and having an impact in that way. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Trapital continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week. Thank you.